Well, good morning, Philly Bible. Glad you all are here this morning. Uh, I tell you what, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit that you are always with us. That just as Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that you are with us always. And Father, we thank you for that. We live in challenging times. And we live in a day when ordinary people out to eat at a restaurant can get blown up or threatened or shot. In a day when our country no longer seems to know you all that well and where the knowledge of Jesus Christ seems to be something of a memory. Father, we pray for your mercy. We pray for your mercy on us and on our culture. And Father, we pray that your people might shine like lights in the darkness and might proclaim the gospel with boldness because we know that in Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have and the only solution for all of the difficulties we experience. And Father, we we pray this morning that as we worship you, that you would be glorified, that Jesus Christ would be exalted and honored, and that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit to obey the truth that we learn. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes uh, our culture, I think, jumps the rails so much on a particular issue that the church simply has to make a statement reaffirming the truth because a lie repeated often enough and loudly enough can get believed even by people who uh, know the truth, even by people within the church. And right now, the issue where our, our culture has gone crazy is with respect to marriage. Uh, we no longer seem to know what marriage is. Uh, guys, if you've got those slides, see if you can get that first one up there. Um, uh, why it should be held in esteem and valued. Uh, We think now that marriage is primarily about the happiness and the self-fulfillment of adults. Uh, We no longer believe that it's about the flourishing of families. Uh, We now believe marriage is about the gaining uh, or conferral of government benefits and social recognition and approval. And we're also told that marriage has little, if anything, to do with God, His Word, the church, uh, or anything related to it, apart from the religious traditions our culture has built up around marriage. And so we're therefore told that any combination of people may campaign to have their relationship sanctioned and recognized as a marriage. Uh, In other words, we are at a point culturally where, as the great novelist George Orwell wrote in a slightly different context, he said, we have now sunk to the depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men, because what has heretofore been obvious is no longer obvious. The truth is now rejected as bigoted while the lie is swallowed with a smile and propagated across the land as being true. 
Uh, yet we in the church, I think, really do possess the truth about marriage. Amen? And the truth is, is that marriage is redemptive and life-giving and a blessing to our culture. And it may be restating the obvious, but it is obvious to me that we are uh, now in need of a restatement of what marriage is and why it exists, and that marriage is defined with reference to God and His Word and to the church, and that specifically God has given marriage to teach us and to teach a watching culture some deep truths about Himself and about Christ and about the church, and that in marriage we have, if you will, a living and visible expression of the gospel message itself. And there's a whole lot more I could say about this subject. In fact, there's a whole lot more the Scripture says about this subject than I will cover today. But I want to be sure that we all understand four big truths about marriage and how our marriage is meant to be a gospel-centered relationship. So if you have your Bibles, I want, to, want you to look. We're going to look at several passages. But the first one is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And if you've got your Bible there, uh, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, uh, two times in my life, uh, both in seminary as well as a, a student at Taylor, uh, I had to write a paper on Ephesians 5.22-33, to 33, and it actually was a, a neat exercise uh, doing that, and it's become one of my favorite passages on marriage, this whole subject, uh, beginning in verse 22 all the way down to 33, because Paul makes it clear in this passage how marriages are really meant to be lived out in imitation of Christ's relationship with the church. And a lot of people get this confused. They think that 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 marriage uh, you know, has an analogy in Christ and the church when actually it's the reverse, that the bigger and deeper and higher relationship is Christ and the church, and marriage is an, ex- is an example of it that we can get our arms around. It's the, it's the analogy to Christ and the church. Uh, Christ and the church is the pattern after which our marriages are to be modeled And Ephesians 5.25 is one of the ways we see that demonstrated, specifically in the fact that there is a high cost paid for our redemption. Now, we don't do this anymore, but in the ancient world, when a man wanted to get married, he had to go to her father, and there was a price that was paid for the woman called the bride price. There you see a couple of examples of this in Scripture uh, where, exa- as an example, Jacob, when he's living with Laban, he falls in love with Rachel. And he goes to Laban and he says, I want to work or I want to earn your daughter's hand. What do I got to do? And he says, seven years of labor. Work for me for seven years and then you can marry Rachel. Now, in fact, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, Laban was more of a cheat than Jacob. Uh, But he did work for seven years. And the Bible says that that they just seemed like a few days to him because of his great love for Rachel, right? 
See, another example of this with Saul and, and, and David. Saul is the king, and initially he promised that whoever killed Goliath would get to marry his daughter, Michael. Well, David did that. But then Saul was kind of a jealous guy, and he said, well, I got another idea. How about this? You can marry Michael in exchange for a hundred Philistine foreskins. In other words, go to war against the Philistines and collect these little trophies and bring them back, and then you can marry my daughter. And I think the deal is, is that Saul is hoping that David is going to get killed in this endeavor, but David does not get killed. He is protected by the Lord. In fact, he brings back 200 and makes a pile of them at Saul's feet and says, here you go. She's worth it. When's the wedding? All right. Now, my point in all that is not to be gross before lunch, but simply to say that there is a cost that marriage involves. There's a cost that is paid. And and Ephesians 5.25 makes it clear that Jesus paid a high cost for us. And it wasn't in Philistine body parts, and it wasn't in years of labor. It was in his crucifixion and death on the cross. Amen? Jesus paid a very high cost that you and I might become the bride of Christ. And Paul says that since that is true, if you're a husband, you also have a cost to pay. That just like Jesus Christ laid his life down for his bride, so men, if you're married like I am, you also have a cost to pay. And getting married will cost you your life. It will. Not a joke. True story. Uh, It will cost you your life. And it will cost you your life in ways big and small. It may cost you your life in the fact that, you know, as I heard about, there was a home invasion in Indiana. Pastor's pastor was out at, uh, he was out at his office. His wife was killed while he was gone. But you can bet if that man had been there, he would have happily taken the bullet instead of her. So there's an aspect of that, that, you know, you don't, if you hear, if your wife hears a noise at night, you know, you don't say, I'll wait here with the phone, honey, you go check that out, (laughs) right? You're the man, you're supposed to be the man and lay down your life for your wife. But there's also a daily sacrifice that is made, that you forego some of the things you might have enjoyed had you stayed single. You know, maybe you would have bought a duck boat or something else, right? Um, or a motorcycle or what have you. You know, some of you are lucky enough that after you get married, you get the motorcycle. But, you know, whatever, okay, there are some things that you forego. You forego a certain measure of freedom. You forego a certain level of being able to do what you, whatever you want because you're the only person to be concerned about, a certain level of selfish uh, uh, living that you would otherwise be doing 
And you do that willingly and gladly in imitation of Christ so that your wife and your family might benefit from the sacrifice that you make. Amen? You lay your life down day by day by day by day. And ladies, by the way, this passage does not let you off the hook completely. Um, It's not in this verse. It's in verse 22. Husbands or wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Uh, There's a level of paying a cost with getting married for you too, isn't there? That you need to follow this man's leadership, not because he is always right or wise or godly even, but because he is your husband. And God calls you into that. And there's a level of sacrifice that you have to make in doing that. But when this cost is paid, it's in the paying of it that God's blessings come. You know what? It really is. Been married almost 20 years to the same woman. I still think that's the greatest trick I ever pulled on anybody. <laughs> okay. Convincing Karen, this wonderful, godly woman, to marry me, of all people. Okay. But what I have found out is, is that our culture lies to people. It says that the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is that you would get married and have to give up all of this stuff, right? But what I found out is is that that's a lie. That in fact it is in the act of sacrifice, in the act of laying your life down for somebody else's benefit that you experience the greatest blessings of life. And I would not go back I would not rewind the clock for anything. Give up my children and my wife to be single again? Are you kidding? No way. Right? There is nothing I would trade for them. And in the act of dying to yourself, you gain God's blessing. And it's not a one-time cost. You, you pay it out over a lifetime. But in daily paying it, what you do as both husband and wife, husbands as you lead with self-sacrifice and wives as you follow with self-sacrifice, what you testify is that you, you proclaim to each other and to a world that is watching that the gospel is true and that he who loses his life will save it. Marriage is tough. It is. It's tough. Question for you. How can two flawed, sinful human beings who are as different as they can ever hope to be, just by virtue of the fact that you're talking about a man and a woman, they're as different as they can possibly be. How can two sinful people like that ever hope to be happy together? Answer, they can't. Except they involve somebody else greater than themselves. When your marriage is centered around Jesus and on belief in the gospel, then you experience redemption followed by change day by day as Jesus, by the word and the spirit, teaches you to lay down your life like Jesus. Makes, that makes the impossible possible. 
And a gospel-centered marriage not only involves paying a cost, it also is founded on a covenant. And the first marriage covenant is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. I want to show you that. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The context here is creation. Adam, the first man, was created first. And then the woman from his side, which is the place where God designed her to fit at his side, to be his equal and to stand next to him and be his companion. And Adam intuitively knows that this is the relationship that God intends for him to have and that that kind of relationship requires a covenant. And first... In his statement, he recognizes her as his one and only mate. In other words, this is the one. The one and only one that I am intended for. The one that is made by God for me. How do you know if you found that one, by the way? If you married them, they are the one. Okay. A lot of people get confused on that point. They go, maybe I married the wrong person. No. If you married them, they are the one that God intends for you to have. Okay. And he recognizes her as God's gift to him. And so he says, and he gives her a new name. She receives a new name from him. By the way, do we still do that? Yes. At the end of every wedding that I do, I say, um, by the power vested in me by the state of Illinois and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is now my distinct honor to present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. whoever, right? Because she has gotten a new name. Why? Because she is now part of him. She is connected to him And they have made a covenant with each other. And one of the signs of that covenant is in the giving of a new name. And he also, Adam also speaks prophetically that this is the pattern for the future. That a man will leave his family of origin and form a new family with his wife being joined only to her. And the two will become one flesh. And notice the order within the covenant being made. That first, there's a promise made to her that she will be his solitary mate. There is a new name that is given and received. Uh, Then there's leaving a father and mother. And then there is joining in one flesh union. Covenant precedes consummation. Not just in your notes, in your Bible. Covenant precedes consummation. Before there can be a one flesh joining, there needs to be a covenant that gives that union security and stability and purpose. 
And that's why Christian weddings follow this pattern. At first, there are vows. And there is a new name given to the wife as she unites with him. And a public recognition that a new family has been formed. And then, after all of that, we throw rice and stuff at them as they head off to their honeymoon and they celebrate their one flesh union. That is the biblical pattern. That's the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because, again, our marriages are meant to illustrate the gospel and the way that Christ deals with us. Now, I want to show you, flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 26. There's a lot of flipping today. I don't normally do that, but this, this subject requires some flipping in your Bible where you can see various passages, okay? Matthew 26, verse 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus instituted communion, he is telling his disciples that it's more than just a fellowship meal. It's more than just a celebration of the Passover, of which he is the fulfillment, although it is both of those things. It's also the meal by which the new covenant is established. And every biblical covenant, whether you know it or not, is sealed in blood. When Abraham received the covenant from God that he would become a great nation, that, um, that, that he would have a land of his own, that he would have um, uh, bless, God's blessing on him, that he would have offspring as numerous as the sand on the sea. When he received that covenant, God, God, the way that God did it was this. Abraham made his sacrifice. And he split these animals, and there was blood everywhere as he split these animals in half. And then Abraham, at the end of making the sacrifice, fell asleep. And in a dream, he saw God represented as a fire passing through by himself through the pieces of the sacrifice that Abraham had made in indicating to Abraham, it's not that you and I are making a covenant together. It's that I am making a covenant, Abraham, with you. And, and the idea behind that, that's, that's what that symbolized as God passed between the pieces of the animal was, if I don't keep my covenant, may it happen to me what has happened to this animal. In other words, may I be destroyed if I don't keep my word. That covenant was sealed in blood. And when... When God established his covenant with the whole nation of Israel under Moses, the way that that happened was that at twilight they took the Passover lamb and they cut its throat and they smeared the blood on the door. And those who put their blood on the door, the blood of the animal on the door, were indicating that by faith they had received from God the covenant that he had made with them. When a man and a woman get married, there is a covenant. And ideally, they are both virgins on their wedding night. And that covenant on their wedding night is sealed in blood. 
And Jesus says, when he makes a covenant with us, the new covenant, that it is sealed not in the blood of sacrifice, but in his own blood. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for us on the cross. And through his blood, we are cleansed like a bride and the new covenant is established. And we, as his bride, get a new name, don't we? What do we call ourselves? Christians. We are named by the Savior because we are part of a covenant. And only those who are in the covenant with God through Christ, receive, properly speaking, that name. And through Christ, we enter into spiritual union with him. Now, this has significance for our lives. For those of us who are single or dating, remember, covenant precedes consummation, and the order matters because our relationships are not just about us. They're also about putting the gospel on display to a watching world. And for those of us who are married, we need to remember that our marriages aren't like any other kind of relationship. They are relationships established by a vow. And while the reality of it is that we are all going to fall short of perfectly living up to our vows all of the time, In striving to keep them on our end, what we are doing is imitating Christ. And what is more, because of the new covenant that Jesus made with us, that we receive forgiveness of sin through the new covenant, therefore the sins that we commit in our marriage covenant can be forgiven, not just by God, but by one another when they fall short of their vows to us. You know, I've done some weddings, and people stand up here on their wedding day, and they goo-goo at one another, you know, they look at each other, and they're just like, oh, I love you. I love you too. You know, and they're they're so great. They really are. It's awesome. I love weddings. They're one of the favorite things I get to do as a pastor. But in the back of my mind, when they're making their vows, and they say, I promise, Mary Sue, I promise, I promise, I will love you and cherish you and treasure you forever, and I will never disappoint you. I think, oh boy. (laughs) Dude, that isn't going to last five minutes. I bet you're not going to make it out of the parking lot before that's broken, (laughs) right? And when she says, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life, right? Will you really? Okay. Yeah, I'll bet, right? Until he doesn't do the dishes one time you ask him to. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And then honor will not be the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) Right? Um, We all fall short of our vows. Amen? We do. But because of a set of vows which Jesus has made to, to us, through which we receive forgiveness for the sins we have committed against him, we can also extend forgiveness to one another when we fall short, as we're going to. You know, I've encouraged you all to laugh at Karen and me. You know, we had our first fight as a married couple in the parking lot, leaving the reception, right? We did. That is a true story. It was painful at the time. It seems foolish and stupid now. 
But at the time, it was like, oh, the reality of marriage has landed, right? We're much more mature now. We don't fight about the same stuff. We fight about different stuff. <laughs> but, but, but the reality is the new covenant blessings we have in Christ enable us to make this thing work. And our marriages, as they are happy and as they are peaceful and as we learn to forgive each other for even more challenging stuff, then we put the gospel on display and our marriages actually can be a, an apologetic to a watching world that says to, to you or to me, you know, how is it that you all are not miserable? Everybody else I know that's married seems to be miserable. How is it you people are not miserable? And you can say to them, well, I tell you what, it doesn't have a lot to do with me, and it doesn't have a lot to do with her, or it doesn't have a lot to do with him, and it doesn't have a lot to do with me, but it does have a lot to do with Jesus, who died on the cross and forgave our sins, and that enables us to forgive each other of all kinds of stuff and to make this work, because it's totally impossible apart from him. Marriage also has a consummation. And I want to be real careful about this, this because at a certain level, our marriage beds are not comparable to our relationship with God through Christ. But there is, nevertheless, a consummation and a union in both of those relationships that is real and that is important. So if you've got your Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 16b down through verse 20. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul writes here, 16b, uh, For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now the context of this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth for the fact that some of her members are continuing to visit the local prostitutes. Now I would wager that most of us probably already know this is not mature Christian behavior. That, you know, you didn't need to be, you didn't need a Sunday school teacher to take you aside and say to you, now, by the way, now that you're a believer in Jesus, you ought not do this, right? Most of us know that intuitively. And I would also bet that most of the people in Corinth actually knew that too, but they were continuing to do it and so Paul is both teaching and rebuking. But the thing that, that I want you to notice here is not Paul's rebuke, but his reasoning. Because the rebuke is important, but the why is important. He gives us why Christians should flee from sexual immorality, and he gives several reasons. First is the fact that whomever you join your body to, you become one flesh with, just as Adam said in Genesis 2. And that union is meant only for the holiness of the marriage bed. And number two, and even more important, is the fact that you are already joined to someone if you're a believer in Christ. 
Whether you are married or not, you have someone with whom you are joined. And that person is Christ. Look at the verse. Uh, here, let me, let me show it to you. See if I can find exactly which one. But he, verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And we dare not unite Christ with anyone else in any kind of immoral act. Amen? Since we are already united with Christ, we need to be careful, Paul says, who else we are united to. And third, your body is holy because it is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You know, people sometimes, sometimes talk about that, you know, with reference to things like exercise or not eating another donut or trying to stay gluten-free or whatever that is, right? And they go, well, you know, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and those things, you know, might have value in and of themselves, you know, probably not eating so many donuts is better for you and so forth. But the issue that Paul is making with that statement is that you do not pollute morally the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And finally, here's the last reason, that we are not free to do this. Because we already belong to someone else. Christ, in his death, has already bought us and paid the redemption cost with his own life. So our bodies and our spirits do not belong to us anymore. They are not ours to use how we want they are, they, we belong to Christ, and therefore he tells us what we may and may not do with our bodies. Because, and his purpose is that we would glorify God with them. Now, some of you may be wondering how all of this relates to marriage and to the gospel, and I want to explain carefully. When a man and woman become one flesh, they are uniting themselves in a physical, emotional, and spiritual bond. And that bond exists in imitation of the bond that we have with Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when a married couple celebrates their union together in their marriage bed, they are in one sense celebrating not just their marriage and not just their relationship with each other, they're also celebrating their union with Christ to which the act of marriage is meant to point them. So let me be very careful so no one misunderstands. Our relationship with Jesus is not in any sense sexual or romantic. You know, we don't... I don't even like the old hymn, In the Garden because it sounds like I'm having kind of a romantic meeting with Jesus, and he walks with me, and he, you know, I just, I'm just not into it, okay? It seems weird, and it is a little strange, all right? I'm sorry if you like that hymn. Don't email me, all right? <laughs> but, but our relationship with Jesus is not like that, but, but here's the big thing, that 
sex is meant to point us to Jesus because we experience in it the kind of relationship and closeness that we don't experience in any other kind of relationship between people. And that that kind of closeness and intimacy is meant one day to be superseded by our union with Christ in heaven. Jesus said, in heaven there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Now, I used to be very confused about that because I, 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 I have a good marriage. In fact, I have a great marriage. And I, and I used to just kind of scratch my head and go, how is it that it can be heaven when the person I most enjoy spending time with is I'm not married to? I don't understand that. How... How does that work? And, and, it's be, and it's real simple. It's because when we get to heaven, we ne- the, the closeness that we experience with a spouse is replaced by something much better. The point of heaven is not what it looks like. People ask me, you really think there'll be streets of gold? You really think they'll have gates made of pearls and all that? And, and I say to them, well, I look, you know, honestly, I don't know. I think some of that is probably literal, but I, I can't tell you for sure I've not been there. But this I know for sure, that the point of heaven is not the geography or the architecture, but the fact that Jesus is there and that we are there in union with him. And... We aren't married to our spouses there because our marriages here are meant to point us to the greater marriage there where we experience reality as the bride of Christ. And and so if you're single, what you need to be doing is glorifying God by focusing on the union with Christ you already possess and will enjoy to a much fuller extent in the glory that is to come and flee from sexual immorality in every form. And if you're married, you need to allow the intimacy and, and enjoyment you have in your marriage bed to allow that to point you to a much higher and greater intimacy that you will one day experience in spiritual union with Christ and, uh, that, and recognize that this is just a foretaste of that that is to come. There is a consummation that waits for us. And if I could compare it to something, it would be like this. You know, when my kids were little, we had one of those turtle sandboxes. You know, we had a wading pool, right? And it was great. You know, you had to keep the lid on, the, the sandbox, to keep the cats from pooping in it and all that, right? But, but you've got the sandbox, and you've got all the little toys and stuff. You run around the sandbox, and then you get the wading pool. And the wading pool is fun as long as you're little because, you know, you can get in, you can get wet, you can splash around, you can not worry about having to drown or swim. And... Um, and, but you get grass clippings in it, and then it just gets muddy and kind of gross, and then, you know, just nasty, right? And, but they had a lot of fun with that until one day we took them to the ocean, right? And we took them to the ocean, and it was like, oh, so this is what sand is really like. And this is what being able to swim and play in the water is really like, right? 
And even in the very most enjoyable experiences of our marriage, they are like playing in the wading pool and the sandbox when a day at the beach is what we're awaiting. Does that make sense? It's meant to point us to the greater reality that is to come. Last thing, communion. I want to look with you at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for, for him. It is not good that a man should be alone. Those of you who are married, say amen. Amen. It is not good. It's painful. It's hard. And God made marriage. He made it so that we would not be alone. He made it for companionship and relationship and for the marriage bed. He made it for a blessing for all humanity. And at his very best, we enjoy communion with our spouses that is surpassed by no other relationship that we enjoy on earth. And we are knit together, body and soul, all the way to the grave. And it is a sweet and joyous thing. Why do you get married? I'll tell you why. You get married because you are out to dinner someplace or you're out walking at a park or you're, you know, you're doing whatever it is you did back when you were dating. And at a certain point, you looked into each other's eyes and you talked and you connected and you thought to yourself... I need about 50 or 60 or 70, or if I'm strong, 80 years of this right here. Because this is great. And I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with this person. And that kind of communion, soul to soul, is what marriage is meant for. But I also believe that both in the communion that we enjoy like that and also in the struggles that we often have in maintaining it, that they're both given to us by God, that he might point us to the great day. We're in the second chapter of the first book. Go to the last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22. I want to show you this. John is writing there, and he says, verse 3 and 4, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. One day, all of the pain and the disappointment that we sometimes experience when our marriage falls short of its best will be swallowed up. One day we will see God face to face and he will give us his name. 
One day we will experience deep and rich fellowship with God and with one another, which marriage at its best is designed to point us toward. And one day our souls will be filled with the joy of being fully known and fully loved, which is the hallmark of marriage at its very best. And when we live out the communion with our spouses that God made marriage for, we come to understand in a richer and deeper and more personal way the reality of our eventual much fuller relationship with Christ. Marriage serves as the sign and the shadow, but the reality that this points to is coming. It's coming. So let me say it again in a different way, and then I'll be done. Christian marriage is meant to be a visible expression of the gospel from the beginning to the end. From cost and covenant to consummation and communion, it reflects the higher and deeper reality of Christ's love for us. And the only question for us, if we are married, is whether the reflection that we're making with our marriage is clear or foggy. So if you need help that the picture of Christ might become more clear to a watching world, come see me. I would love to talk to you. I will sit and counsel with you. I'll hook you up with another couple to mentor you. Um, We'll do whatever is necessary to help you because this is too important that we get this right. But we live in a world that is deeply confused about marriage and about much else. And our marriages are meant not only for us, but also to put Christ and the gospel on display to a world that needs to know the gospel message. Amen. And my prayer for us as Chillicothe Bible Church would be that we would be characterized by such wonderful relationships, not only within the church, between the various people, but also within our own homes. That people who are watching us around the city would say, I don't know what they're doing over there, but they must be doing something right. Because look at all those people and how they bring glory to God and how they live. Amen? Let's pray. Father, 